And in your Bible today, the book of Isaiah, the book of Isaiah chapter number one. And while you're turning there, I'll tell you a little Mother's Day thing here. I carry in my Bible, and I have for many years now, two little cards here. And they're dated. One of them is dated. The other one doesn't have a date on it. March the 28th, 1982. This was the card that members filled out their name, and if they wanted to, they could write a little brief message. And on uh, that day, March 28th, 1982, my mother was sitting here. She did every Sunday for 20 years, and uh, she wrote me a little note. And they brought it to me after the service when they uh, bring me the visitor's cards, and they brought them all to me in those days. And she said, the book that you ordered in the bookstore is here. I love you and thank the Lord every day for you and your stand for the gospel. You're a good preacher. That's the only compliment I ever need in the whole world. I don't care if anybody ever else tells me that. I carry that around with me. Then she continued, you're my pride and joy. Love you, Mom. Well, you see why I carry that, don't you? And um, if my confidence needs, um, pardon me, if my confidence needs a little boost, I just look and see what my mother said about me. And it really doesn't matter what anybody else thinks, right? But uh, Mother's Day touches your heart, doesn't it? Isaiah chapter 1 in your Bible. The book of Isaiah has been called the book of hope and judgment. The book of hope and judgment. It has some of the most glorious, wonderful passages dealing with hope in all of the Bible. Tonight, I'll be bringing a message on one of those passages. And it also has some chapters of scathing judgment that is going to come upon the nation of Israel at that time, or the nation of Judah, rather. Now, let me give you a little background, because so often people read their Old Testament, particularly they get to the prophets, and they just say, boy, this is, this, this is beyond me. I don't know what this is talking about. Well, it's usually because they don't know the context. They don't know the background of the passage. The nation of Israel had a civil war after Solomon ended his 40-year reign. You had three kings, three great kings, and each reigned for 40 years, Saul, David, and Solomon. After the reign of Solomon, the kingdom split, and it was a great civil war, and it split into two portions, Israel, the northern kingdom, and Judah, the southern kingdom. Now, this happened about 240 years or so before Isaiah was born, to put that in context, our nation is about 236 years or so old. So Isaiah lived after the Civil War and the division of the nations about the same time America has been a nation. So it was a long time afterward, along comes this prophet, Isaiah, we call him. And ever since the Civil War in Israel, the nation had declined. The northern kingdom, Israel, was composed of 10 tribes. 
most of the nation in terms of tribes, though not necessarily in population. The capital in the north was Samaria, and it was ruled by a succession of very wicked kings. If you read the story in First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, you will not find one good godly king ever in the history of the northern kingdom. And they had all gone all in for idolatry. In fact, they had been caught up in the Baal, or some people call that Baal, Baal cult, B-A-A-L. Baal was the Phoenician god of fertility. And along with the practice of the worship of Baal, because it was a fertility cult, there was this extreme immorality, sexual sin, unbelievable sexual uh, events that they had. And it was something else just as bad, if not worse. And that is that in the Baal cult, people would bring their little babies and they would put them in a fire as an offering. They burnt their own children, if you could imagine. In 736 before Christ, the northern kingdom was invaded by the Assyrians. And the 10 tribes were carried away. You even hear people refer to the 10 lost tribes of Israel. That's what they're referring to. Now, unlike the south, the 10 tribes never came back. They were scattered all over the world. And so today, Jewish people don't know which tribe they're from because those tribes were scattered and the records were lost. Now, in the southern kingdom of Judah, there were two tribes. And Judah and Benjamin, the capital remained in Jerusalem, the city of God. The kings were mixed. Some of them were very godly men like Joash and Hezekiah. Some of them were wicked unbelievers. And they were also worshipers of Baal in some cases. About 150 years after the nation, uh, after the nation split, in 586 B.C., Judah was invaded, of course, by the Babylonians. And they were carried away to captivity. The city was ransacked and burned. The temple was destroyed. But after 70 years, many of those Jews drifted back to Jerusalem, as told in the story of Ezra and Nehemiah. And so many of the Jews went back home, and they resumed the, uh, the nation itself. Now, before that Babylonian captivity, just before that, there lived this man, uh, Isaiah. We know Isaiah as the prince of the prophets or the greatest of all the Jewish prophets. His name was Isaiah ben Amos, Isaiah the son of Amos. Isaiah actually means, and you might want to write this in your Bible, it means Jehovah is salvation. So every time anybody calls his name, they're reminded that God is our Savior. Jehovah is salvation, the literal meaning of this prophet's name. He came from a wealthy family. He was a man of rank. He was a man of standing, a man of education, his writings, they tell me in the ancient Hebrew, are the writings of a, a very intellectual, highly educated man. He begins his ministry not in chapter 1 here, 
It's not written in chronological order. His ministry actually begins in chapter 6, which we'll look at in the not-too-distant future. And there he describes his call of how God came and he gave him a vision of the Lord himself. And for over 60 years, for over 60 years, this man traveled up and down Judah speaking for God, the man of God, the greatest of the prophets, Isaiah ben Amos, the man whose name meant Jehovah is salvation. His message, a message of hope, and it was a message of judgment. Let's look at chapter 1 today, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. See, that's where his ministry was, in Judah and Jerusalem. The nation, the northern kingdom didn't even exist for most of his ministry. And he prophesied in the days of four kings, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, the kings of Judah. Now, in verse 2 begins his message. And here's the way I'm going to break it down today. Number one, he brought a charge against the nation. Number two, he called the nation to repentance. And number three, he extended an invitation to salvation. And so those three little thoughts are what we are going to gather uh, the rest of the message around. Number one, the charge against the nation. Now, he charged them, and in his charge, he describes the conditions of his society. Let me back up, or let me read that to you, but I want to point out something before I get into the conditions. In verse 2, hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord hath spoken. The Lord has spoken. Boy, he claims the very authority of God himself when he preaches. He said, I'm not telling you the opinion of Isaiah. I am telling you God has spoken, and you need to listen to me. And you can sense his authority here. The Lord has spoken. Now, here's the charges. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. The ox knoweth his owner, and the ass his master's crib. But Israel doth not know, my people doeth not consider. Now, they still referred to themselves as Israel, the ancient name of the nation, although it was, it was Judah specifically. Ah, sinful nation, he says, a people laden with iniquity, a seed of evildoers, children that are corruptors. They have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked the Holy One of Israel unto anger, and they are gone away backward. And so he brings this charge. What is the charge? He said, you have rebelled against God. And in verse 3, I want you to notice as he describes their rebellion, he says, even the ox and the ass, the donkey, they know who their master is, and they listen to their master's voice. Now, it's believed, or it was believed by the people that day, that the ox and the little donkey were the dumbest animals of all. I don't know if they are, but that, that's what the people believe. So he, he says to the people of Israel, hear the word of the Lord. He says, the dumbest animals we have, the ox and the ass, they at least recognize and know who their owner is, and they respect him and reverence him and obey him. But then he speaks for God, and he says, but my people 
Don't consider when I speak to them, says the Lord. And so he then charges them with ingratitude, and he charges them with a whole list of sins, every kind of wickedness. Just take your Bible and look with me here in verse number uh, four. Look at the various kinds of wickedness that he describes. He says, it's a sinful nation. It is, then he talks about people laden with iniquity. And then he talks about evildoers in the country. And then he speaks of corruptors. And then he says, they have forsaken the Lord. And he says, they have provoked the Holy One of Israel, Almighty God, to anger. They've, they've been so disobedient that God is angry about it. And they are going away backward. And what he actually means there is they've turned their backs upon God. So he charges the nation with every kind of wickedness you can possibly think of. You just read that, and, and all the different kinds of sin and evil are named there. In verse 7, then, he goes on down, and he begins to mention that they are, or pardon me, in verse 5, rather, he talks about their, uh, their condition, then, that they're sick as a nation because of their sin. Why should you be stricken anymore? You will revolt more and more. He said, the whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. Now, notice what he says about their condition. He compares them to a very, very sick, maybe even a terminally ill person. And he says, their head is sick. And then he says, their heart is sick. And then he says in verse 6, from the sole of the foot, even to the head, there's no soundness, there's wounds, there's bruises, there's sores. You see, every kind of, of inflammation and infection you can imagine here, there are bruises, there are putrefying sores, open sores, running sores, as unpleasant as that is. And he says they haven't been closed or sutured up. They're not bound. They're not modified. There's no bandages on them. There's no medicine to cure them. He, he compares the nation to a person who is very, very ill and has these sores and, 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 and uh, bruises and so on over their entire body. And then in verse 7, he sees judgment coming. So he, first of all, charges the nation with rebellion. Secondly, he charges them with every kind of wickedness that you can describe. And then he says, now judgment is coming, but here's how he says it. I want you to notice how he phrases verse 7 and the following verses. He speaks to them as if it had already happened, though it's not going to happen for a number of years. But he speaks to them as if it is already true. And so he says, your country is desolate. It's already desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Your land, strangers devour it in your midst, aliens. They had an uh, open borders problem there in Israel, apparently, at that time. And it is desolate, as overthrown by strangers. And he describes the nation. He speaks of it as if the judgment had already come because he's speaking for God. And God could see the future. 
And he knew they were not going to repent, though he was giving them an opportunity to do so. Now, down in verse 9, you have, to me, one of the most beautiful verses in this chapter. Verse 9 of Isaiah 1, except the Lord of hosts had left to us a very small remnant. We should have been as Sodom, and we would be like Gomorrah. Now, what is a remnant? We used to have a little store here in town called the Remnant Shop. And it would be that they would cut pieces of a remnant of material off of a bolt. A remnant is a small minority of whatever it may be, whether it's a bolt of cloth or a group of people. And so he says, except God had left us in Judah a very small remnant, a minority of people who are godly people, the godly seed, the people who still worship and follow the Lord, except for them, we would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah. I've often thought about this verse. You see, what this verse is teaching us is that even a very small group of people can have a profound influence on the whole. It doesn't take a majority of people in a society for that society to turn. It takes a dedicated and a consecrated minority or a remnant, if you will. Now, Jesus referred to his apostles one day in the book of Matthew chapter 5 as salt and light. He said, you are the salt of the earth, and you are the light of the world. He said to them, now the salt is no good if it loses its saltiness, its savor, its flavor. It's not good for anything then except to throw it out and make a walk out of it and and, and put it on your sidewalk. And then he said, you're the light of the world, and be careful that you let your light shine. Don't hide it under a bushel, he said. Don't cover it up, but let your light shine. Now, salt and light have two things very much in common. It doesn't take much of either of them to make a big difference in their environment. So last night, my wife made some red chicken stew for dinner, and she cut up some celery stalks, and I was eating my red chicken stew and my celery stalks, and I got the salt shaker, and I put some salt on the celery. You know what? As I did that, I thought, because I'd been studying for this message, I thought, you know, here I have a celery stalk about this long, probably weighs, what, a couple ounces? And I took the salt shaker and hit it a time or two, and just a few grains of salt, I don't know, we'll say 100, 100 grains of salt went out on that long stalk of celery. And I put it in my mouth, and it flavored it. It, ta it tasted so good that salt brought that flavor out. Everybody here watching, listening has had that experience. You take a boiled egg. Boy, it isn't much until you get a little salt on it, is it? And you know, it just takes a little bit. That egg may weigh, what, two or three ounces? And you're putting 
few grains, a hundred or two grains of salt on it, and it changes the whole thing. And so it is with the remnant. Now, I can get discouraged if I will look in with the wrong perspective to that and look around at our society. And I see all the things that are happening, and I'm not even going to try to recount them. You know about them. There is so much evil. It's just like verse 4. It's just like verse 6, that America is sick from the top of her head to the sole of her foot. And then I look around and I say, how many real Bible-believing, Jesus-loving, God-fearing, sin-hating Christians are left? And there's not, it's not a majority. I don't know how many it is, but it's not a majority. I'll tell you that. But you know what? We can make a difference. We can hold back the tide. Maybe that is even why we exist today. Maybe God called us to serve our generation to hold back the tide. That when the enemy comes in like a flood, that the people of God will be there and they will flavor that culture. And maybe we will not even see some of the things we would dream of in our days, but we're making a difference. We're holding it back. We're restraining the evil of the culture. And then Jesus said to his followers, you're the light. You're the light of the world. You know the one thing about light? It is overwhelmingly powerful. The darkness has no ability with the light. I'm standing in this auditorium. This auditorium has no windows in it. And the only light that can come in here, if you come in during the daytime and the lights are not turned on, is there's a little bit of light comes through those doors and there's little cracks in the doors back there about this big. Yet, you know what? That light comes in here unimpeded, and it streams down these aisles. And a tiny, tiny little beam of light overcomes the mammoth amount of darkness in this room, and that light shows up. That light holds back total darkness. A little bit, a remnant, a minority that is pure and that is consecrated and that is dedicated can make all the difference in the world. Now, I think God has a remnant in America today. I think that remnant, though it be a minority, is millions and millions of people that are godly people. They do love the Lord. But I think right now would be a good time for us to search our hearts and measure our purity. Because salt that's not pure, Jesus said, is good for nothing. And thank God, light can't even be contaminated, but it can be hidden. And a lot of Christians today are hiding the light. They're not witnessing. They're not talking to people and having spiritual conversations. They're hiding the light that they have. And they think, oh, I don't make any difference. Oh, my friend, you make all the difference in the world except there had been a very small remnant, we would have been like Sodom. And we would be like Gomorrah. Isaiah is saying, thank God for those of you who are in that remnant, the salt, the light. You're holding back those forces that would destroy men's souls. Now we come to verse 10. 
You'll see a little paragraph marking in your Bible. And again, he speaks on behalf of the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, he says. That's a good phrase for a a Bible preacher, isn't it? You listen to me. Hear the word of the Lord right now, he says, you rulers of Sodom. See, now Sodom and Gomorrah have been destroyed now for hundreds and hundreds of years, over a thousand years. But he's speaking to them as if they were Sodom and Gomorrah. Their condition so resembles that of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he speaks to them, and he says, in essence, you rulers of Sodom and give ear unto the law of God, you people of Gomorrah, listen to me. He, sa- he, in essence, is saying, you have descended to a moral and ethical level that's comparable to that of the citizens of Sodom and Gomorrah long ago. That the morality and the ethics in Israel and in Judah today is no different than it was in Sodom and Gomorrah. And so he refers to them as the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. And in verse 11, he points out something that we would all very well, uh, should, we should give heed to. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to the Lord? And then he quotes the Lord in a strange thing. The Lord says, I am full of the burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beast. I delight, I delight not in the blood of the bulls and the lambs and the goats that you bring to to sacrifice to me at the temple. The temple was still standing. When you come to appear before me, who hath required this at your hand to tread my courts? You don't have to come. Who required you to come? Why do you come to church, he's saying. And then he says, bring no more vain oblations. Incense is an abomination. The incense that they brought and was offered up as symbol a symbol of prayer. He says, you celebrate the new moons and the Sabbaths and the calling of assemblies. I cannot away with it, says the Lord. It's an iniquity, even the solemn meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feast, my soul hateth. I am weary, he says, to bear them. And when you spread out your hands, and the Jewish mode of prayer was this. They held their hands out with their palms up like this. And he said, when you spread your hands out and pray to me, I will hide my eyes from you. And when you make many prayers, I will not hear because your hands are full of blood. Boy, those are some, I mean, those are some words of judgment. Those are some of the words so powerful in condemnation of the hypocrisy of that day. He was saying, in essence, you come and worship me. You bring your sacrifices. You bring your incense, and the priest puts it on the altar. You spread your hands out, and you look up to me in prayer. And he says, I hate it. God said that. I despise your observing the feast days and why did he do it? Why did he say that? He said, because of your insincerity, your hypocrisy. My friend, the one thing God wants in us above everything else is truth. Genuineness, integrity, sincerity. I, 
I try to search my heart often, and I know every sincere Christian does. It is so easy to play the hypocrite. It is so easy to say the things that are expected of you. It is so easy to, to serve the Lord with duplicity, going through the motions. I'm doing it because I have to, what people will think of me, and so on. It, it's a battle that every honest preacher will tell you has to fight every day. But you can serve the Lord. You can go through the motions. People can say, oh, wonderful, wonderful. We had a great service. But it's God looks not on the outward appearance He doesn't look at my suit and how I tie my tie, whether my hair is combed. He looks at my heart. Is there genuineness, sincerity, integrity there? And he says, if you don't have that, why do you play the game? Why do you play the game? And he said, I hate it. God says I hate something. Just stop and ponder that. He hates hypocrisy. Now, he didn't say he hated the hypocrite because at some point we've all played that. But he said, I hate that hypocrisy, that insincerity. And that's been a theme of my preaching now for a long time because I see it. But, boy, I, I tell you, the cultural Christianity, the nominal Christianity we have in America Isaiah chapter 1 and those verses right there really ought to put put the fear of God in a lot of people who go to church on a regular basis in America. Why do we do it? Why do we do it? What kind of a game are we playing? The game is with ourselves. We're not fooling the Lord. And I have to say, Bill Monroe, why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? And then he says something else at the end of verse 15. And your hands are full of blood. What's the blood he's referring to? It's the blood of those babies that have been burnt and offered. The worship of Baal. Oh, my friend, this is not the day to do it on Mother's Day, but it's in the text. I have to say it. The blood of 60 million babies cries out across America today. There's blood on the hands of America as well. Your hands are full of blood. Oh, if there's one sin, every Christian ought to be confessing to God every day. It is the sin of this nation of abortion. God help us. You see, the end of verse 15, I will not hear. When you make many prayers, I will not hear because your hands are full of blood. And then in verse 16, he calls them to repentance. Wash you, make you clean, put away the evil of your doings. That's repentance. And cease to do evil. Change, turn your way. And then we come to verse 18. Oh my, this is a diamond here. This is an this is gold in the text. Come now, said the old prophet Ben Amos, Isaiah. Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white like snow. And though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. 
Spurgeon said, the great word of the gospel is in Isaiah 1.18, come, come now. You know the word come is in the Bible hundreds and hundreds. I think it's around 800 times. God is always inviting the people. His hands are extended to us. Come, 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 come. Come now, he says, and let us reason together. John 7, 37, Jesus said, if anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. And the very last verse in the Bible, in the very last few verses of the Bible, Revelation 22, the spirit and the bride say, come and let him who hears come and let him who thirst come and whosoever comes, let him take the water of life. That's salvation. Let him take it freely. So you see, the great gospel word here is come. Now he's pointed out their sins. He's called them to repentance. And the third thing he says is now, come. There, he preaches a message of hope and a message of salvation. Verse number 18 right here. What a wonderful, wonderful passage of Scripture. Now, the promise here is if you will come and reason with the Lord, here's the promise. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. I don't know. In eternity, we'll find out when people give their testimony there, we'll find out the millions, perhaps, of people that heard that verse right there, and they acted upon it, and God made them clean. He cleaned up their scarlet lives. He cleaned up their lives that were stained by sin and made them clean and as white as snow and as white as the wool on the little sheep. I want to ask you today, have you experienced that cleansing and that forgiveness? My Isaiah 1 here ends on such a wonderful note of hope and praise. Come, let's reason together. And it doesn't matter how dirty and how scarred you may be. It doesn't matter how sick you may be spiritually from the head to the foot. It doesn't matter that your hands have been full of blood. Even God says, I want to clean you up, and I want to make you whole indeed. Are you washed in the blood, in that soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb? There's a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners that are plunged beneath that flood will lose all their guilty stains. Recently, I don't know how I happened to be doing it, but I found an old video, years old. It's been around our house. And it's a video of songs by the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir. And they brought a man out in the middle of that video, a live concert, and his name was Calvin Hunt. And he told his testimony with big tears glistening and running down his face his little wife standing beside him, tears on her face. Calvin lived in the New York area, I think Brooklyn. He was a crackhead, a crack addict. And he had gotten so bad that he had left home. And they, the, the filmmaker went out to the lot, a vacant lot grown up with weeds and littered with trash like you see in these inner cities. 
And in the middle of those weeds back there somewhere was a doghouse. And Calvin Hunt had sunk so low, lost his job, left his family. He was living and sleeping as a crackhead in a doghouse. But his wife was a believer. She never quit believing, and she prayed. And she's at the church one night praying with people in a great prayer meeting. And the door opens, and the Holy Spirit of God did what nobody can do, nobody but him. And Calvin walks down the aisle, and he hears people calling his name in prayer. And he trusts Christ as his Savior. And his life straightens out. And he goes back home to his family. He gets off of the drugs by the power of God. He begins to come to church and begins to live for the Lord. They find out he's a wonderful singer. And so they invite him to be not just one of the singers, but a soloist for the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir. And on that video, he sings with tears running down his face of gratitude and love to God. I'm clean. I'm clean. I've been washed in the blood. I'm clean, so clean, through the power of his love. I've been cleansed in the fountain of blood shed for me. Oh, I'm clean through the blood of the Lamb. I'm clean. My friend, you can be on drugs, or you can be living the wickedest life of anybody in South Carolina, and he can make you clean. Or I remember a woman walking down the aisle and saying at the end of a service, I want to find God. How can I find God? And we took her, and somebody went off to the side, took a Bible, and talked to her. And she trusted Christ. And then she confided, the doctor told me I don't have long to live. She was a woman of refinement, a woman of education. She lived in one of the nicest houses in town. She had diamonds dripping off her fingers, and she was dressed nice, and she drove a beautiful car and lived in a big house. She didn't have the problems of Calvin Hunt. She was a long ways from living in a a doghouse, I promise you that. But you know what? She needed washing in the same blood that Calvin did because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now, there's just two qualifications for that. Look in verse 19. If you're willing and obedient, well, then you can have that. If you're willing and obedient, two attitudes. Are you willing today to come to Christ and bring your sins to Him? Are you willing to obey Him and kneel at His feet, repent of your sins, and pray and say, Oh, Lord Jesus, today save me from my sins. Make me clean like that woman and like that man He just told about. And if you don't, of course... There's a word for you here too, and that is there'll be ultimately destruction for you, and you don't want that, and I don't want that for you, and God sent me today to preach this message and you to hear it so that today you can respond and you can say, I'm clean. Jesus himself used that come word 
And a beautiful, beautiful invitation. I see him with his hand stretched out before the multitude. And he said, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Are you tired of your sins? Are you ready to come to Christ and find rest for your soul? Bow your head with me right now.